Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jean-Marc Pisapia. Jean-Marc is the founder and frontman for The Box, a judo-nominated new wave group that achieved incredible commercial success in the 80s by releasing four charting albums and 10 charting singles. The Box songs you will know and love include Must I Always Remember. My Dreams of You. La Faire de Moutier. Say, say to me, say say, say to me, and their biggest hit, Closer Together. The box came, conquered, and dispersed. But they are back again and playing music again. Jean-Marc has been nice enough to make some time to bring us all up to date on exactly what the box is up to these days. Salut Jean-Marc, welcome to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Bonjour to you and all of your listeners. I am now situated in Mont-Tremblant. Mont-Tremblant is a ski resort about an hour and a half north of Montreal which we moved to, my wife and I, about 15 years ago when our kids were grown up and we had nothing left to do and say in the city. <laughs> and I have to say, I really enjoyed it. Here, you can have a look out the window. This is what it looks like. Beautiful. You're definitely side. living the dream. You were oh. ahead of the curve because uh, most of us know Mont Tremblant well, and I've certainly been out there to ski, And but I hear it's a great 12-month-a-year place to live. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And by the way, Mont-Tremblant is divided into two parts, the jet set area near the ski station and the farmlands, which I can see from here. And I'm with okay. the with the cows and horses and all that. Very peaceful. Very nice. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, let's jump right into the question everyone wants to know. What is the current status of Jean-Marc Pisapia and what is the current status of The Box? Well, I'm still the lead singer of the band. I'm still the main writer of the band. And that's all I do. I don't do anything else. Oh, it's not true. Uh, ever since we moved out here, I've decided to start painting. I thought that the general atmosphere of the place was conducive to that. And um, I started about, I'd say, 12 years ago. And by doing it every day, as with everything in life, you get a little bit better every day. And then I joined a group of artists, a, uh, a collective, and we, um, we run a gallery. I help run a gallery here along with all the other artists. So I'm, for example, I keep shop once a, once a week, generally on Thursdays, because the rest of the time, usually we're on the road with the box, which leads me to the second half of your question. Yes, the box is very much alive. It's been 18 years now since our reunion back in 2004. And by the way, it's not a reunion. It's more of a new edition of the band, uh, because 
way back then, I might be anticipating here on your questions, but way back in the 2000s, early 2000s, uh, the industry kept pressuring us to get back together and hit the road again, but the former members of the band wouldn't have anything to do with it. Mm. Uh, yet, I had made a lot of friends during that decade where the box was off um, in all sorts of musical projects, and I proposed to these guys, what do you think, would you like to form another version of the box and, and take the road? And they said, absolutely. And it turns out that this bunch is the same from day one, um, 2004, and it's, it's, it's just a gas. You see, there's a big difference between having to go on tour because you need to sell records and going on tour because you want to. Mm. It's night and day. And we're going to get in. We're going to get into all that. That's a great description. We're going to call it, I guess, Box 2.0. 2.0, exactly. Yeah. Let's go all the way back. Get the Jean-Marc Pissapia story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Oh, my God. I was born in Montreal. Uh, upbringing, pretty normal, I guess, uh, except for the fact that my dad had the good idea to send us in a French lycée in Montreal. In other words, it's a private school based on the French system from France of education, which resembles very much what uh, the education system resembled in, in Canada back in the 30s. Very rigorous, especially uh, the uh, apprenticeship of French so and history also. So it opened, I would say that it opened our minds uh, to a bunch of things which other kids might not have been uh, exposed to. And mixed to that were, uh, my dad is Italian. He came here at age 24 and, uh, and stayed here forever. But uh, we were, um, I'd say, compelled to do uh, many uh, prolonged periods of time in Italy. So that was also a, a major factor in my upbringing because it was a completely different culture, completely different surrounding, and, uh, and it stuck to me for my entire life. And the same could be said of the U.S. We also spent uh, long periods of time in Rhode Island and New Jersey in the U.S. And uh, that's where I picked up English, by the way. Mm -hmm. And that also um, played a major role in my upbringing in that it made me uh, discover an entire a different concept of living over there and in Italy compared to what we are used to here in Canada. And that was... Um, you know, it marked me forever. But I have to add, the one thing that really struck me, I was lucky enough on one of these trips to Italy to travel to the Soviet Union with my uncle. And we stayed there for 28 days. And it, I think it was an incredible stroke of luck that I could see that for myself. And I was only 13 years old. And we spent uh, uh, quite a bit of time in Moscow and Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. And you know what? It was my, the most depressing thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> really so, means you appreciate your life in North America. Are you kidding me? It's unbelievable. I mean, I remember very well, the first thing that struck me while we were there was the fact that there were no pedestrians in the street. No, none. No cars. If you had cars, it, were, it's, it, were, it was going to be taxis and trucks. And the only private cars you could see there were probably belonging to party apparatchiks and, uh, and people closely connected to power. Other than that, there was um, no restaurants, no shops, no terraces, 
no commerces, nothing. And for a kid coming from Italy, this was absolutely striking. And I could say that that single period of my life, these 28 days behind the Iron Curtain, were the most influential of my entire life. That's, that's incredible. And the way it would stick with you to today and influence things. Yeah. Jean-Marc, how did you get into music? My dad forced us. And when I say us, I mean my three brothers and my sister uh, at piano lessons since the age of four. And I hated it. I really did. Uh, and when I finally gave up on that, uh, I was about 15. I didn't play anything for at least three years. And then I took it back uh, on my own, and I played a lot by ear. Played Beatles songs, what have you. And then I discovered that I could actually write my own songs, or at least the music of my song. And that went on for a while, unprofessionally. Uh, and the inter interesting thing to note here is that I used to go to school, the same lycée that I was talking to you about, with Ivan Dorschuk, the, the actual leader of Men Without Hats. And we took German classes together. And so we met like that, and then we parted. He went to do university in communications. I did architecture. And by complete chance, we met in a restaurant in Montreal. And so he comes, sit at my table, and we have a coffee, and we start talking. Yes, I have a new band called Men Without Hats, and we just released an EP, and I thought that was super interesting. And he says, you do music too? And I said, yes, of course, blah, blah, blah. And long story short, he needed a keyboard player to do a use, um, um, an Eastern seaboard tour of uh, the United States. And uh, he proposed. And I said, absolutely. And uh, that's how I started professionally into the business. Eventually, I was hired as a full member of Men Without Hats. That was 1980. And about a year into it, I decided to do the box on my own. And the interesting thing is that I kept the same manager. And by the time our first record was ready to hit the shelves, Men Without Hats were uh, all over the planet with the Safety Dance, which was a major hit. And that gave instant credibility to the management and the record company, which I inherited. So that helped the box a lot in that it opened a lot of doors, which otherwise would have been probably, you know, we would have started from square one uh, and... Uh, but we didn't. We were spared that because Men Without Hats were plowing the way before us. So that is a great help. Cheers to my good buddy, Ivan, from Men Without Hats. Yeah, well, that's an incredible story. So you started originally the keyboardist for Men Without Hats. Before they released the safety dance, took advantage of the same management. In 1981, you put together the band, originally known, I believe, as Checkpoint Charlie. Uh, not really. It, it, it was the box originally, and then we had to change the name because CKOI, which is a major radio station here in Montreal, organized a contest, more or less amateurish bands. And uh, we found out that there were two other boxes, one in London and one in New York City. So we thought, nah, maybe not a good idea to keep that name. And so we switched to Checkpoint Charlie, which, by the way, I, I take the time to explain to your audience is that Checkpoint Charlie was a, the uh, checkpoint on the Berlin Wall through which all of the exchanges, especially of spies from the Soviet Union and the Western world, were exchanged. And uh, that particular point has a lot of history. So no, Checkpoint Charlie is not about a guy called Charlie or anything like that. It's, it was a clear reference to that. See, again, that, that was my background. Uh, talking there with this uh, with this uh, Soviet Union uh, versus the West uh, type of situation. 
And then we found out that both the boxes in London and New York had disbanded. And there was nobody there with that name anymore. And so we reverted back to the box because too many people thought that Checkpoint Charlie was about this guy called Charlie. <laughs> and this this very first single you put together, you actually did it with the help of a drum machine. And yep. this single subsequently landed you a record contract. Yes, absolutely. But back in the day, drum machines were the norm, I'd say, especially with new wave bands and that sort of thing. Men Without Hats, the safety dance, it's, it's, it's a Lindrum, uh, which was one of the first sophisticated drum machines of the time. So yeah, we didn't have a drummer, but it didn't, it didn't take long be before we hired a true drummer because on stage, nah, a drum machine, it's not very spectacular. Well, as you note, your first full-length album came out in 1984. It was simply named The Box. You added Philippe Bernard to replace the drum machine. And you added another guy, Guy Pisapia. I'm going to yeah. guess. I'm relation, yeah. perhaps. Yes, yes, indeed. It's my older brother. Okay. Uh, the point was that I played keyboards with uh, the box in the early uh, days, and I sang at the same time, which is a hindrance, because either you have the keyboard on a, you know, a stand, and there you are behind a counter, so to speak, or at one point I had figured out a way to strap it around my neck with a, uh, as you would a guitar. But that was cumbersome also. And then my brother, uh, he, at, at that time he worked with my father. He saw that the band was going places and he thought, you know what, I'm going to join the band, play keyboards, because he had the same piano background that I had. And he says, you go up front and you go take care of the people. I'll take care of being behind the counter. And that's how Guy joined the band. Excellent. <laughs> now, following up on that, 1985, you released All the Time, All the Time, All the Time. This second album featured My Dreams of You and a very unique song called L'Affaire de Moutier. This was a six-minute track that was available both in a radio version and as an extended version. It was unique in that it had narration coming and going throughout the song, describing the whole affair. It's about a murder. It's very creative, to say the least, plus very catchy. Was this fictional or based on a real incident? It was based on a real incident, but I changed a few things. Just a parenthesis here, it's my favorite song ever. For all the reasons you just described. It's, it's original from bar one to the end. Uh, there was no such music at the time where a story is being told, especially not a murder story. Come on, it's, it's, it's going to be a single on the radio. What are you kidding us? I mean, the record company were not very, they were not believers. And, uh, but, you know, and then, then to get back to your earlier question, the story, the original story took place in France. Uh, in the early 80s, and it was not a girl who had been killed. It was a little boy, uh, but the murderer had been found not guilty on the basis of insanity because he had a case of split personality. And that is what drew me to that particular story, and especially the fact that he had been found not guilty. So I started researching the question. I found out about the Boston Strangler. You remember that story? It was a man who suffered not only split personality, but multiple personalities. And he was going around Boston killing old women. And the thing is, uh, although he wasn't aware that he was the one killing all these old women, he suspected he was because mm. of recouping events and that sort of thing. And he's the one who gave himself up to the police and said, I think I'm the one who does that. And the police says, what do you mean you think you did it or you didn't? 
But the guy said, no, I think I suffer from one of these conditions where a part of your mind is completely alien to the rest. And you have these personalities with do which don't talk to each other. And they have completely different um, behaviors. And so there you go. And then, of course, the world of psychiatry delved into that particular case and made a, a case for the fact that, yes, that sort of thing existed. And, and so and so the, the, the murderer of Elisabeth Tumoutier, my fictional character, suffered from the same thing. And so since it took place in France, I wanted to give the video for that song that film noir uh, ambiance, which you all often seen in um, in French police movies, so that explains the French parts in the song. Other than the facts that the fact that we're Quebecers, French speaking Quebecers, uh, but I did do all of the French language with a very heavy French accent, and a lot of people said to us, "Well, that's a good video, but where's the band in it? There's no band in it." And I said, "I said we are the actors." in that video. And most people didn't know that. I play the inspector. My brother Guy plays the lawyer at the end with the shovel there. And, uh, and we all had a role and we, we had an absolute gas uh, doing that video. Well, certainly not the basis for a typical pop song, but uh, nope. <laughs> no, not at all. Jean-Marc, your next album, your third, Closer Together from 1987, saw the box reach its commercial peak. It featured the title track, Closer Together, which was your biggest hit song, it was actually recorded in 1986 as part of a campaign to help fight leukemia. And somehow it involved the Montreal Canadiens. Please explain. Um, the Montreal Canadiens had just won the Stanley Cup in 1986. As you know, hockey teams are very much involved, especially when it comes to uh, health issues with children, that sort of thing. It's, it's not rare that you will see a hockey player visiting a hospital and going from room to room and shaking hands with the kids there and that sort of thing. So yeah, the, the hockey team was in the, in, in the, but when I was called to by Lucan to do a theme song, they were doing a fundraiser and the theme of such fundraiser, which by the way, was a video, a 10 minute video, something like that. Uh, the theme was team spirit, uh, team spirit. We can, if we, if we get together, we can, you know, fight this leukemia thing. And I'm not even sure if they aren't the ones who suggested that the title of the song should be Closer Together. I don't remember. But even if it were, I took off with the idea. And over a period of about 24 hours, the song was written and the demo was recorded. And like I used to say, me being the hooker that I, that I am, I thought, if we're going to make a, a hit song out of that thing, let's start with this home business, you know, and make sure that people... You know, uh, uh, lend an ear immediately. Of course, when the record company heard about the song, they thought, well, that Lucan business is all very well, but it's going to end up on the third record. And it was eventually decided that it would be the first single. And yes, of course, this uh, video that we shot with the Montreal Canadiens, we set up a kind of a phony hockey game with the kids, some of the players, not all of them, but some of the players and ourselves, the band, and also Martine Sinclair, uh, who was a, who still is a prominent uh, female singer here in Quebec, and who's the one who sings on that song, by the way. Every, everybody thinks it's Sass Jordan because she was our um, backup singer at the time. No, it's Martine Sinclair who sings on that thing, and she didn't want to come with us. She couldn't come with us to shoot the video, so Sass Jordan and uh, Sylvie Davio did. 
So everybody thinks it's SAS and, and CV who sing on that song, but it's not. It's Martin Saint-Claude. And so the success of that uh, 10-minute uh, promotional video for Lucan also contributed to the fact that the song was well-known. Well, as you know, coming from that, when I ended up being on the album, ended up being the hit Everyone Knows, the awesome high-energy video for the song Closer Together got tons of airplay on much music. It was shot in the Dominican Republic. And just to clarify, thanks for bringing it up, Sass Jordan is in the video. Sass Jordan did not sing on that track, but Sass Jordan was part of the box. Yes, she was a backup singer, a permanent backup singer for us. She stayed for a total of about six years. Although she only sang all the other backup tracks on the third album. I don't remember why exactly. Although it does make sense because if she came with us, let's say just after the second album was released, so 85, and then stayed with us five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And then the fourth album came in 1990. And by then she had started her own career. So yeah, but Sass was a major addition to the bat. I mean, that woman is a trooper. She really is. And uh, she had no problem at all with all the constraints of what it means to be on the road with, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10 other guys. At one point, the entire crew was like 18 people, including the band. So nope, she sailed to that, like no problem at all. And I wasn't surprised at all when she started her own career that she got the success she got. Yeah, she absolutely has had success. Now, Jean-Marc, it's great to have you on a personal level because I have to tell you my story of Closer Together. I, around that time, 86, 87, the Applebaum family went away on its very first vacation down south to the Caribbean. And we ended up in the Dominican Republic. We had such an amazing time. And it must have been two weeks after we got back I see this incredible video closer together. My brother Lawrence and my sister Paula, we all said, the box is exactly at the resort we were at. I'm finally going to be able to clarify, uh, 35 years later, was, do you remember if it was in the town of Susua or Porta Plata? It was in uh, both, uh, actually. Uh, the fort scenes where you see Sass Jordan and, and Sylvie Davio clearly with the camera um, uh, rotating around them, that was Puerto Plata and the fort. I don't remember the name of the fort, but there was only one. And the street scenes where you see us with a bunch of people going down the street, that was in Sosua. And we lived in a hotel in Sosua. So you got both right. Well, I, I can't believe this. 35 years, 35 years later, I get uh, confirmation, which is fantastic. You were obviously pretty smart, Jean-Marc, to shoot a video in the middle of winter to go down to the Dominican Republic. We had no choice. I mean, by that time, I knew we had to shoot a video because it had to be released in the spring. And it was absolutely out of the question that we shot that video either inside or in the snowbanks. So down south it was. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Jean-Marc Pisabia, please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We got Glass Tigers' Alan Frew, Chalk Circles' Chris Tate, Strange Advances' Drew Arnott, Lee Aaron's Sean Kelly, Quiet Riot's Rudy Sarzo, and Blue Rodeo's Basil Donovan. How they did it, directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. After heavy touring to support Closer Together, The Box decided to take a break, but you returned in 1990 with the album The Pleasure and the Pain, this was followed by a fourth album in 1992, the compilation called A Decade of Box Music. At that point, the box decided to call it a day. 
Why did the box break up in 1992? The box break broke up from exhaustion. It's as simple as that. We flew to England to record the fourth album in 1989, late 1989. We'd stayed there until January of 1990. It was released this spring just following that. By the way, the record was produced by Martin Rushant. Uh, Martin Rushant was the producer of a bunch of bands, including Human League. Uh, and he had won a Grammy just years before that, not many years before that, for uh, Don't You Want Me Baby. Remember that song? And... Um, he kind of fell in love with our demo and uh, and he wanted to produce the album. So we flew over to England, stayed there with him and did the entire thing, which by the way was an incredible schooling period for me because that guy knew his producing, trust me. Then the album was released with Capital EMI in Los Angeles and that's where a bit of a snag happened. That was the early days of CDs. All record companies re-released all of their catalogs under the form of CDs, usually uh, by doing a discography, an entire discography of whoever the band uh, was. And luck would have it that the same week that uh, we released our record, Capital EMI, who owns the Beatles, decided to put their discography out in a, in a, in a box that they called the cube. <laughs> Do I need to say more? First of all, you don't compete with the Beatles ever. Even if you're the Rolling Stones, even if you're Pink Floyd, you don't release an album the same week as the Beatles. Nobody does that. Secondly, if your band is going to be called The Box, don't release anything the same week that's called The Cube. It's going to create a lot of confusion and nothing more. That's exactly what happened, and the album kind of tanked in the U.S., not in Europe, but in the U.S. because of that. And like I said, the band was exhausted at that point, and we were kind of used to see record company blunder like that, but at that point, not really. And so I lost three members who said, that's enough. This industry is run by a bunch of idiots. We're going back to more ordinary lives. And they wanted to have kids too, i.e. my brother and Philippe Bernard, the drummer. And they wanted to have regular lives. They were kind of done with the uh, 200 nights per year in a hotel room and that sort of thing. So I lost three members right there, my brother, uh, the, um, the drummer. But we decided to pursue the adventure, the guitar player, the bass player, and myself. Uh, for yet another, another couple of years, and we recorded at least a demo of the fifth album, which never came out. Okay. It did come out, but later, much later, like in 2016. <laughs> uh, it was an album called John of Mark, uh, which this current band insisted we re-recorded properly and released. Oh, wow. Yeah. And when I mentioned Europe earlier, it's that, yeah, we had our first international hit. Very, not very documented, by the way. You will not find this on Wikipedia or anything like that. It was a song called Temptation. The video was shot in New Orleans in Louisiana in 1990. And it was released in Europe. And uh, it made a number one hit in, in Italy for 13 weeks. And it was also distributed in a territory called Gast for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and Turkey. 
Now, if you wonder what the hell does Turkey have to do with that, it's simply because in Germany, the Turkish diaspora is so important that whenever the Germans put anything on the market, they always automatically include Turkey in their strategy. Okay. And so and so that's how the band uh, uh, got its break in Europe. But by that time, we were extremely fragile uh, because of the departure of my brother and uh, the drummer, which were essential parts in the, in the puzzle. Sure. And so we didn't pursue the adventure um, as thoroughly as we should have in Europe. Uh, but nevertheless, it was part of the history. So here I am telling about it. Well, you kind of had a 10-year break after this initial breakup. You, Jean-Marc, continued to make music for films. You wrote jingles. 11 years later, in 2003, you decided you wanted to revive the box. Uh, but what happened? Life had gone on for, for some of the others, and I guess it was hard to get the band back together, so to speak. Uh, yeah. Let's address this first. As I mentioned earlier, in the early 2000s, um, there was talk of, all the music from the 80s is coming back. By the way, I've heard this for now 22 years. You know, the music from the 80s is coming back. All right. And uh, we had a lot of pressure from a lot of people in the industry to reform. But now that I've explained what I have explained, uh, the band, the original band, didn't want to have anything to do with it. And they, have, they had all moved on. Uh, the drummer, Philippe, started the construction company. Uh, my brother Guy uh, was in charge of running the computer systems for uh, the um, federal prison system. Jean-Pierre, Claude, and, and I started the jingles company, and that started raking in a lot of money. And that's how I lost Jean-Pierre and Claude, the guitar player and the bass player. It's because when they saw all this wonderful revenue coming in, which you didn't have to travel to get because all you had to do is just stay home and wait for the phone to ring and you get contracts. <laughs> And so we set up a, a recording studio, worked at that for a, for a while. And I thought, well, three, um, too many cooks, uh, three people to do a single um, jingle is too much. And so we parted company, very friendly, by the way. I'm still very good friends with all of these guys. And I started my own business of uh, jingles, writing film music, documentary, and that sort of thing. And it so happens that I had my two daughters with me by by that time, who were barely three and four, something like that. Um, and then I was forced to be home and to work from home. And uh, again, the revenue, the revenues were very exciting to say the least, because it could, it meant that I could finance whatever new project I had in mind. And the positive aspect of all that is that I saw my kids grow up. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I had been on the road all the time uh, from the fourth album on, uh, nobody even knows if I'd be married still today. And I've been with my wife for 36 years now. So all positive. Absolutely. And, and so you got this kind of second wave. You got the opportunity, Jean-Marc, to do something you had always wanted to do, compose, record, and perform progressive rock. That's in true. 2005, the first album from the second chapter of The Box's History came out a concept album called Black Dog There. That was very different for you. Yes, but as you just said, it was a it was a kind of a dream for me, which we could not realize back in the 80s. Because you have to remember, in the early 80s, after the punk era, and especially the new wave era, progressive rock was looked at as a thing of the past. It was really passe. 
But that was my musical diet from when I was a kid. And I always had that dream of doing something like that. So yeah, when we came back in 2004, I didn't want to come back with reheated stuff only. And I said to the this new band, okay, but let's put out a new record. So Black Dog There came like that. It tells a story. I leave it to your audience to discover what it is by themselves. Um, it is pretty much progressive, but not 100%. There's still a few songs in there which last for about three minutes, three, four minutes. Where we really went all out progressive was 2009, when we released a completely French album, Back to My Upbringing, a completely French album called Le Orla. Let me just tell you about that. Your audience might not be familiar, but there is a, a pillar of um, uh, French uh, literature back in the um, 19th century called Guy de Maupassant. Uh, Guy de Maupassant is the equivalent, the French equivalent of Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. They both became famous for a bunch of short stories they wrote. And they were both accused, by the way, of being the kind of tabloid of the day, cheap literature type of thing, which I completely disagree with because I find it extremely rich, but nonetheless. But they were extremely popular from their own living years, uh, although they both died pretty young. And um, when I was in that French lycée, Le Orla, that short story, which is a sci-fi horror type of thing, which is, by the way, 100 years ahead of its time. Back then, it was written in 1887. Uh, that story, we had, it was part of the curriculum when I was a kid in school. I was 12, I think, or 13. And that particular story and his particular writing style gave me the taste of reading. It's because of Guy de Maupassant that I started reading. Fast forward 40 years, and what happens is that I thought that Le Orla was the absolute perfect story, uh, the perfect vehicle for a 100% progressive rock album. And while I was at it, I thought, might as well do it in French, because Guy de Maupassant is French. And I never modified his style. I mean, I wrote, I had to transform all of the writing to fit the singing format, but I never um, touched his style. I wrote it, I rewrote the thing in 18, 1880s French that was spoken at the time. It's still perfectly understandable. It's not like... Uh, you know, antique English where you really have, I mean, Shakespeare, you, you have to pay attention because yeah. you can, you know, but no, Maupassant is modern French, but the style, uh, it's its all in the style. The style was very sophisticated and I, I absolutely insisted not to modernize either the, the story or his style when I did the album. And that was a dream come true for me. Uh, it took me three years to write it and then I had the entire band collaborate in uh, recording it, and we released it. It went crazy worldwide on the net, okay. nowhere else, because, of course, no radio sta station uh, would ever play anything like that. Uh, but it, it, it raked in a lot of success. Well, this certainly brings us, Jean-Marc, kind of up to date. And as we turn the calendar to 2023, who makes up the box today? What past members are still involved? And you've alluded to it a little, but do you keep in touch with the past members of the box? Yes, I do. By the way, uh, I think it was four or five years ago, Sokan uh, decided to make Closer Together a classic. And so we were invited at this uh, ceremony where uh, Mélanie Jolie was present and uh, Robert Charlebois and all the, you know, 
the high-end people of uh, to celebrate the fact that amongst others, we weren't the only ones. There was a bunch of people who had their songs declared as classics. Uh, we were present, but of course, Closer Together being the result of the first band, we were all, the first band, invited to be there. So we met there, uh, I think for the first time in something like 15 years, all of us together. I had seen all of these guys, but separately. But all of us together, it had been maybe 15 years since we hadn't seen each other like that, and that was really a ball. And um, what was the other part of the question? Well, it's at the Mandrama. Okay, well, the members today is, is is people that I met during these 10 years where the box was temporarily out of business and I was doing all of this music for, um, you know, films and, and jingles and, and what have you. And we also had a project, all of these guys and me, a fun project in French, uh, which was a satire of um, many things, um, many musical genres, and it was really funny. Um, and we played that set every Tuesday night in a club in Montreal called Le Set, the Set, S-E-T, as in movie set, because it, it's, it so happens that the majority of the clients from that bar were people who ended their day, their working day really late from the movie sets, and then they all went there to have a beer or two. And so we, I don't know why we decided that that, that was the right crowd for us, and we would play there every Tuesday night, and we did that for something like three years. And we were really tight and really together. And, and above all, it seemed like there weren't going to be any tensions, you know, personal tensions, that sort of thing, because we were all kind of friends. And these are the people whom I suggested we should bring the box back to life with. And, um, and it's, it's been, for one thing, the humorous character of that band that we had then was transferred to the box. So songs like My Dreams of You, for example, which could be played like this and with a lot of honey and what have you, we kind of spoof it live on stage and it's really funny and people just love it. Uh, and we have a lot of fun on stage from the moment we set foot there until when we get out. And it's contagious. People can feel it. We're not there to be serious and play our music to the note you know, really seriously, we just go there and have a ball. That's it. Yeah. And then, like you mentioned early in, in the interview, those 10 hit singles that we have, in the second half of the show, we just do them all one after the other. Oh, yeah. It's, it's happened to me that people said, I didn't know that you guys played covers. What? <laughs> we don't play covers. We only play one cover, and it's the safety dance from Men Without Hats. Oh, yeah, because, do you? Because it was, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, we do. But it's the only one we do. So, That's you know, just, just, to, just to say that when the party starts in the second half of that show, it, it just doesn't let go until the end. <laughs> That's great. Well, during your heyday of touring, you talked about, you know, 200 days on the road. Who are some of the people you toured with and, and any, any good stories from your touring days? Oh, yeah. Uh, we played with the Pretenders. We played, well, first of all, our first uh, Trans Canada tour opening up for someone was with the Spoons. And that was back in, I believe, 1982, something like that. Eh, maybe three, I don't remember. And they were just awesome to us as people. And by the way, they, they are still around. And uh, I met Gordon and Sandy not too long ago, and they're just as great as they were back then. And then there was Jethro Tall, uh, whom we played with at the uh, Coliseum in Quebec City, the equivalent of the Montreal Forum. Uh, where are you located? In Toronto, right? 
I'm in Richmond Hill, a suburb of Toronto. And okay, so of course, uh, we're going to ask you about playing the Phoenix. I wanted to know if you ever played Maple Leaf Gardens. Nope, we haven't. But we used to play two nights at the Ontario Place, the revolving stage, which is yes, now the Forum. Unfor- that's right. Uh, we used to do two nights there uh, for about four years in a row. And that to me was even more satisfying than doing the Maple Leafs because of that rotating stage, uh, which yeah. was a lot of fun to do. And then the other thing, well, yeah, the Pretenders, that was in Kingswood. Uh, that was back in 1984, I believe, the very early days. And if you ask for a funny story, we did a Trans-Canada tour, complete Trans-Canada tour with uh, Chris de Berg. Uh, that was in 1895, I would say. And it went from uh, Victoria all the way to um, uh, Halifax. Even, no, not PEI and not Newfoundland. Anyways. Uh, Chris DeBerg was accompanied by his wife and daughter. I think she was two or three years old. And we never got to meet the guy uh, because he would ride in with the limousine, do the show, get out, go back to the hotel, and that's it. Except for <laughs> one date. One date. And and by the way, his wife was fine woman, but a little bit controlling. She was vegetarian, <laughs> for example, and she insisted that the entire crew and the, the, the opening act and everybody only ate vegetables, no meat allowed, that sort of thing. You see what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and after the show, Krista Burke would just disappear, you know, no beers, no nothing. Except for one gig. We uh, played uh, Toronto, then we played Montreal, and then we went back to Hamilton. And after that was Halifax. But his wife stayed in Toronto after the Hamilton gig, which meant that poor Krista Burke was free like a bird at that gig in Halifax, and man, did he enjoy it. I mean, he was a completely transformed guy, and he went out with us that night. We went out in a in a bar and had beers, and he got half drunk, and he, he was just having a ball. But that, that I thought was really funny. Christopher's magic moment of freedom. Yeah, with a box of all people. We never did drugs. We never did anything like that, but he had the time of his life with us. I have to ask you, I'm a huge fan of The Pretenders. How much interaction did you have with Chrissy Hine? None whatsoever. Uh, It was another situation like that where they were situated in a a dressing room at the other end of the, usually a big bank like that. What they do is they go from the hotel to the gig, do the gig, and go home. It's the crew that does the sound check and all of these things. So, you know, so, and since we played first, well, we went on stage, we did our thing, we came off. Uh, they were somewhere in a limousine waiting to go on stage and they go on stage, they come out and they go directly back to the hotel. So no, we, we haven't met any of them, which I, I guess is Jethro, Jethro Tull, same thing in Quebec city. Uh, we, I never got to, to say hi to him. I guess this is naive of me. I would have assumed these well-established bands would want to show support for the opening band and pass on some tips or at least pay a little attention, but. Chris DeBerg did. When we played the Montreal Forum, opening up for him, he liberated his entire... Uh, maybe you don't remember that because I suspect you're too, you're too young, but it was a lighting system called Varilights, which is invented by someone who worked for Genesis. It was those lights that move by themselves, okay? Mm-hmm. And they were extremely expensive and they were a sensation. And when you went to see a show where that was happening, everybody was in awe. And Christberg allowed us to use the Vary Lights for our show in Montreal since he knew that it was our hometown. So very much appreciate. That's great. Now, I have to ask, who is the box's biggest celebrity fan? 
I believe it's the lead singer of Men at Work. Yeah. Because I talked with, I talked with his lawyer. I don't remember why exactly, but she said that, or at least it's the only one I know. And apparently, and, and she told me directly that the lead singer of uh, Men at Work, I don't remember his name, was a huge fan of the box. So that's the one I know. Maybe there are others. I don't know. <laughs> and I was going to ask as a follow-up to that, are there any uh, strange situations, let's call them, uh, you're su surprised where someone recognized you, maybe an airport or a different part of the world that you didn't think someone would recognize you and your music? Uh, it happens all the time. In fact, it's I yeah. can't think point to one single time. Uh, yes, and I'm always a little bit what really, especially since and 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 the funny part is it happens more often today than it used to in the '80s, and I I can't figure it out because I look different. I mean, yeah, I do look different, and uh, and yeah, people come to me and say, "What the box?" I don't know. The last time that happened, I believe it was in Ontario, in Toronto. And it was a kid. I think he was like 18 years old. And I, that even added a layer to it because I, you know, that, that kid, could, I could be his grandfather. <laughs> and by the way, that's the funny thing is that we, for the last six or seven years, we've seen kids that age show up at our gigs and, uh, and they're having a ball and I'm there and I'm saying, okay, fine. We do put a show that is, uh, that is a lot of fun and all that, but still we're a bunch of bunch of old farts for these kids. What the hell's going on? You know, they come to me and they say, no, my parents and my grandparents used to listen to your stuff. We were raised on that music ever since we were two, three years old and all that. Well, it's interesting because Jean-Marc, I have to tell you, certainly in Toronto, uh, Boom 97.3, the radio station, I'd say just about every weekend is an 80s weekend. Mm -hmm. And I can guarantee you, you're going to hear multiple songs from the box. And I wonder for you, when you're driving around your car in Mount Tremblant or you're down to Montreal, uh, it must be very gratifying for you to be driving around and, and the song from the box comes on. Absolutely. It happened uh, last week. I was in a Chinese buffet in Laval, just outside of Montreal. And, uh, and the song La Ferre du Moutier comes on. And, and I'm, you know, eating my whatever. <laughs> and all of these people are there, you know, and they're eating their stuff and nobody does anything. <laughs> That's always funny. I think if I pulled up beside you and I was kind of nodding my head to the song and I saw you beside me, I'd, uh, I'd do a double take for sure. Oh, yes. Yeah. Someone honked at me at a, a traffic light once. <laughs> they honk at me. They're the, car, the car just were waiting for the red light to change. And the guy goes, bip, 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 bip. so I, I look over and he pulls down the window and there's, again, La Ferdinand blaring out of this car. And he, he recognized me right there. Yeah, that was funny too. Not to get political, but how come you never got in trouble with the Quebec language laws? Shouldn't you have to also have been named Labois? There are no laws for that. Um, at least if you are a business that has a street sign, then the, the sign has to uh, conform the law. But if you're a bad, I don't think it applies. But yeah, we had a lot of trouble uh, for, known, for being known as francophones and singing in English but only from a part of the media. And I say it again, a part of uh, the intelligence, yeah, not all of it. And one thing that is absolutely incredible is that the entire population of Quebec, most of which is Southernist, by the way, uh, is a big fan of the band. I mean, when we go and play Chicoutimi, for example, the, the Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean region, which is known for being 100% Francophone and Southernist to the 
they always get us there like we're the end of the world. It's like, uh, you know, there is a love story be between this band and the province of Quebec. But yes, it's true that when you move to larger cities, especially Montreal, not Quebec City, there is a love story with Quebec City too. But in Montreal, we've had a little bit of black backlash from some of the intelligentsia, but not all. I want to ask you about the shirts you wear. And this goes back to box in the 80s and even I noticed today. Am I correct that they seem to feature some kind of military ranking stripes on the epaulets? Uh, is there any special meaning to the particular shirts you wear when you're on stage? Well, uh, they are, but not military. Um, it's rather airline type of thing, or even maybe boat captains. The four stripes are the captain. Um, now, the thing is, I started wearing that. I have a picture of myself in the studio right there. It's 1985, I think, and I have that shirt on. In fact, the fir very first official uh, picture of the band, I have that said shirt on but with only three stripes then. No, it, it, it's just that I knew that it was a visual tag. And I knew that a visual tag is a very important thing uh, to have. And although I refused uh, to play the game of the big hairdos from the 80s and the spandex and what have you, uh, I still knew that I needed to have something that would clearly identify me with uh, as being the lead singer of the box. Although, at about, I'd say, between 86 and, and 1990, I had given up on that, that idea of the stripes. But when the, the band reformed in uh, 2004, it those were back, and they're always there. I never do anything. Like, for example, if you had told me that today the picture there was recorded, I would have been wearing that shirt now. All right. But well, I'm, just... I'm in my, my pajamas <laughs> instead. <laughs> <laughs> hey, me too, the two of us. <laughs> Jean-Marc, how do you like to ride the 80s nostalgia wave? And what I mean by that is, are you open to touring under the banner of hits of the 80s as opposed to the box? How do you feel about the, the representation of the band today? Well, it seldom happens that we ride under the banner of uh, hits from the 80s. Usually when we are presented anywhere, it says the box. Uh, secondly, even if it were a thing from the 80s, I'd, I'd say I'd be pretty proud of it. All these songs that we do live from the 80s, I'm very proud of them. And uh, they don't get old, not to me anyway. And when we play them, we have a lot of fun. And uh, uh, I'd be very disappointed if I went to see the police, for example, and they didn't play Roxanne because yep. it's an old song. I don't yep. care if it's an old song. It's a good song, period. And by the way, there's a bunch of songs from the early days of the box which don't work live at all and are pretty boring, and we don't do those. But those songs who have been hit singles, I'm more than proud to play them, and I know that people like them, so it would be like, I mean, that's what we do. We go out there to play for the people, not to play for ourselves. So, yeah, we do them, and it's, it's just great fun. Absolutely. Now, we recently had Chris Tate from Chalk Circle on this podcast. He mentioned they were supposed to do a few shows with you, what is next for the box? What shows do you have lined up for 2023? It's a little bit early to say, although bookings are coming in almost daily. Uh, yes, it was a real uh, disappointment that we couldn't do our thing with Chalk, Cir Chalk Circle last year because uh, Chris developed a sciatic nerve problem, which grounded him. Uh, apparently, it was just unbearable. Um, and then after that, I caught COVID, so we had to uh, work around that too. 
but there are plans which I'm not allowed to talk to, but all I can say is that it would involve the spoons, and that would be for uh, the summer of 2023. But like okay. I say, and by the way, to all, all your listeners, the, the best way to find out what we're about is just to go visit the website at theboxband.com. Very important to put the band in there because you're going to see a lot, a lot of cardboard, but not us. So the, <laughs> theboxband.com, and you go to the date section and everything is there. Well, you read my next question because I did want to ask where we'd follow you, theboxband.com. And Jean-Marc, are you, are you big into social media yourself or... Only on Facebook. And and by the way, I don't really put uh, my breakfast on uh, <laughs> on my posts. I only post about my paintings and the band. And every time we have a show coming up, I do a little video, which I post on my uh, personal page, by the way. That's another thing I have to say to your uh, uh, audience. If you want to get a hold of me, whether it's by messenger or anything else, forget those phony box official Facebook pages. They're no good. They're run by fans. Sometimes they take care of them. Sometimes they don't. I don't even know how to take them down. Maybe I don't want to take them down because I don't want to be rude to fans who do it. The thing is, if you go to Jean-Marc Pisapia on Facebook, that's the real place. And if you want right. to talk to me and if you want to messenger me or if you want to listen to what we're up to, that's the place to go. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was great catching up with you, hearing all your stories. And I wish you continued success as we go into a brand new year. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And if we play around Toronto, when we play around Toronto soon, make sure to come and say hello. If you're there. Absolutely be there. I will 100% be there. Thanks again for your time. Thank you, Andrew. Talk to you soon. And to our listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. On behalf of Jean-Marc Pisapia, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world, and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.